is so important. Um, and God started it today in the worship. The songs that were sung, the words that came, you're going to see are the message. I want to say something. Whenever anybody comes up to me, the biggest compliment you can ever give me on a sermon is, that's exactly what the Lord was talking to me about this week. That makes me think that I'm actually lined up with what he's doing. That's the biggest compliment. Well, I got to tell you, it's kind of nice to do a sermon and walk in here and see God doing all sorts of things that are exactly in the same mode as what it is that he's going to be doing through me. So it's cool when God is in control. Now, let me just say, how many people were here last week for Robert Kelly's first sermon ever that was phenomenal? How many people? I mean, amazing, right? First time preacher, really? I'm like, good grief. You know, I wish I was that good first time I ever preached. The bottom line, though, is what he did was, is what God is going to do is he's taking what Robert did, and as he always does in this church, one week builds on the other in a way that we did not plan. We didn't orchestrate this. You can't orchestrate this. There's way more moving pieces than you could ever get a hold of and ever control. And so what happens is, is God just week to week to week is building what he wants to build. What Robert did last week was is he went after the most, one of the most important characters in all the Bible and one of the most important moments in all of human history. The person was Abram at the time, then became Abraham because he had been told that he was going to have a child. And through that child, he, even though he was quite old, he was in his 80s at that point, so was his wife. He was going to have a child and that the descendants would be more numerous than the stars of the heaven, the sand of the sea. And so he heard that, he believed that, there it was. But then the point that Robert picked up on was, is, what does that mean? We, you can say he believed but so what? What does that mean? No, it's not so what. It's what does it really look like to believe in the way that God said he accounted as righteousness? And that's what happens with Isaac. Isaac is born, and then God tells him to sacrifice him. Now, let's just be clear. Is there anybody in this room that would sacrifice your child for any reason? I mean, I really do believe that if God came right to me and said, sacrifice your child, I just, I don't think I could do it. I just don't think I could. Now, I don't say that in a good way. I say that in a bad way. Because what happens is, is my child has become bigger than God. But we do that, right? And that's exactly what he did when he contrasted then what Abram had done, Abraham had done, that was so extraordinary. The Lottas are here. Hi, lovely to have you back. All right, talk to me afterwards, all right? Um, but uh, they're doing missions too, so awesome. But, but the bottom line is, where was I? Um, is that he contrasted Abraham with Saul, okay? And Saul is us. Saul is the guy who when God tells you to do something, Saul's the one that gets it figured out how to do that in a way that works with how I think it should go. He's not the guy that just simply obeys. He's the guy that figures it out and does it the way that he thinks is right. Does anybody else, can you relate to that? Okay, this is us, right? This is who it is. So the one that he brings up is the, the most important one of all where he did this. He did it several times. But the Philistines, an overpowering force. And the bottom line is, is, I feel like I'm quite loud. Can I go down a little bit? Am I? Okay. But, but God comes, he, the Philistine army is going to overwhelm, and Samuel has told him, the prophet has told him, I want you to wait seven days, and then I'll come, and I'll make the sacrifice, and then you'll go to battle. So Saul, to his great credit, waits seven days in the face of this overwhelming army. I still feel like I'm hot, if you could, please. Okay? So the bottom line is, is that what he does is, is he's waited the seven days, but his own troops start to leave. He just kind of freaks out. He gets something going in his own head. And he just decides in a way that honestly is very reasonable. It even has some nobility in it. You know, I didn't want to go to war before we'd done the sacrifice and honored God. I mean, there was real logic in it. Good, godly, that kind of Christian logic that we all use. But the problem is, is that when the prophet gets there, he says, you didn't obey. God wanted to do something with you. He wanted you to wait on him. He wanted you to trust him. 
He wanted to make, he wanted you to know that he was bigger than that army. But you didn't. And now, see, with Abram, Abram is the father, Abraham becomes the father of faith. <clears throat> when God says his descendants are more numerous than the stars in the sky, he realized we're the stars in the sky. It's not just the Jewish people he was talking about. He was talking about everybody that would come to God in the same way, right? And what God is saying to Saul is, is had you done it right, had you obeyed, had you trusted, had you believed, had you had faith, I would have done something similar with you. But now, no, I'm going to take it and do something else. And he did with David, right? And thank God for David. But you see that contrast right there. Now watch this. This is not just academic 2,000 years ago or more, actually 3,500 years ago or 3,000 years ago, whatever. But the bottom line is this is just not ancient history. Does anybody else think that, that the world is in probably the most interesting time right now that it's been in in your lifetime? If you're old enough to be like me, there's one other time in the world, there's one other time in our history that you would remember where things just went bat crazy. And that was the 60s, right? In the 60s, there was two different ways of looking at the world. And for all, for everything you could do, the ones that saw it this way could not understand what these other people were thinking. They thought they did, but they didn't. And the ones that thought, saw it this way could not understand what these people were thinking, even though they kind of thought that they did. I did not think we would ever see that again. I was hoping we would not see that again. But we are seeing that again, the degree to which there is a, remember, God is the one who makes us one, and God is the one who said about a year and a half ago to this church, a little over a year and a half now, that he was withdrawing his protection in a degree, to a degree, to let us slip down and experience the consequences of our actions, and that that would lead to confusion, great confusion. And he told us that. And now what we're experiencing is this confusion. This, this, I mean, you got to work hard right now to make a connection with somebody who feels strongly on one side or the other. If you feel strongly, particularly if you feel strongly on the other side, and it does seem like everybody feels strongly, even though most people at this point have quit talking because it's just so difficult to do so. It goes so poorly, right? Because things are so fractured right now. So we're in the middle of something here. Now, I want to suggest to you that when you're in the middle of uncertainty, you really need faith. Because what you'll do is you'll try and figure out what to do, and you'll go ahead of God, and you'll figure it out for him. Which means you'll be in the wrong place. Right? So, I really, a year and a half ago, he told us that things were going to get weird. And then what he started doing, remember what he started doing? At the very beginning of that, what he said to us for months was simple obedience. You're not going to understand. You're not going to get it. I don't care. Just obey. Just obey me. Now, as he did that and taught us simple obedience over and over and over, how important it was to be just simply obedient, he then, at the beginning of this year, he started talking to us about what? Faith. Do you remember what we've been talking about since the beginning of the year? This is one of the images, stop and pray. What was that about? I told you this was about taking 21 days where you would believe God for something that you needed to be rescued from because God was trying to show you who he was so that we would begin to trust him again. Because he was saying to us that we don't really trust him. We think we do, but we don't. We look at other things and we get our focus on them and we think that we're doing the God thing in there, but we don't actually have our focus on God. And so he wants to show us how much bigger he is than what we thought so that we'll once again trust and end up obeying. See how it works? And then if you remember at Easter, we did that bulb, and that bulb meant what? It was new life. God's doing something new. He's trying to bring something, and he wants you to know he's doing something new. And it's going to come up. It's new life. It's new that's coming. And he wants you to be in a place where you can be somebody who is participating in that new rather than resisting, rather than getting the new, having the new run over you. So this is what God has been doing all the way since the beginning of the year. He's been working on faith. Today, God is going to take that excellent sermon that you brought, Robert, thank you, 
and he's going to take it to the next place that it goes. How big God really is and what he wants us to get out of that. So this is important. So with that, who's our prayer? It's <laughs> great. I'm gonna have Robert Kelly pray for us then, okay? All right, all right, so, all right, so Robert, lift up the sermon, would you, and lift up another church too. Robert, raise your He's, hand first. Right, right back there, thanks. Well, Lord, we just, we thank you for what you are doing in this body. We thank you for what you're doing in your people and that you are bringing us into your will, Lord, that we would be able to see what that is. We wouldn't differentiate it from ours, Lord. We would begin to see how you want us to see. Amen. Lord, that you would help us to see as you see. Amen. By our faith, not by our sight. Amen. By the spirit, not by the flesh. Amen. Lord, that that would be our sight. That would be what we rely on. That would be how we know what step to take next. It would not be from ourselves. It wouldn't be from our logic and our reason and our best intentions, Lord. It would be from you. Amen. And Lord, I just lift up uh, Southlands Church International in, in Brea, California, Lord, and just pray that you would you, move in love there, Lord. Um, not Thank just in power, but in love um, for your children there. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So remember where we are in our journey in Luke now, and if you're visiting, great to have you here, and lovely to have you here. I know you guys, so I don't know if you remember me, but I do you. So um, I just want to show you, we're, that, that last little red line there, we're right at Jericho today, and this is the very last days of Jesus' life. This is the last, as I said a couple of weeks ago, what we're, what we're looking at today and next week is the last thing that happens before the Passion Week kicks in in fullness. And so, this discipleship journey that we've been on, watching how God discipled the disciples and letting him disciple us the same, where we are right now is, is we're right at the very last thing that happens. How important do you think that is? Because I'm gonna tell you, God is very intentional about such things, and the last thing is the most important thing. And sure enough, if he's talking about faith, it's impossible to please him without faith. And if he's trying to get us to a place where we believe him for real and therefore love and trust and obey, how much bigger can it get, right? So with that said, we're at the very end and we're only doing one verse today. And it goes like this. The crowd, remember he done Zacchaeus last time and then going right into this, the crowd was listening to everything Jesus said, and because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. Most of us know this well. Let me just briefly bring us all up to speed. The Jewish people, including the disciples at this point in time, were believing that Messiah was a worldly ruler who would raise up the, land, the nation of Israel unto rebellion from the iron boot of Rome and would deliver them from being oppressed by Rome. This is what people were thinking was going to happen and this is what they were thinking was going to happen and the problem is in just a few days before next Sunday, Jesus is going to die. Now let's be clear about something. Last, probably Wednesday, not this Wednesday, but a week ago Wednesday, about 10 days ago, Jesus told them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be killed, don't worry about it, I'm going to resurrect. So you would think that they wouldn't be thinking this thing about being the Messiah that was going to do the thing that they thought he was going to do, but they didn't get it. And so the bottom line is, look what he's doing right here. He's telling them, you have a thought about how things are going and what they're going to be, and I'm telling you, it ain't going to be that way. In fact, what's going to happen, despite the fact I've told you plainly what's going to happen, what's going to happen is something that's going to freak you out, so much so that you're going to scatter and run, because you are not going to be able to understand what this is. Do you see it? So this is what's going on in them. Now, for us to really understand what Jesus is doing in them right now so that we have it happen to us too. We have to do something for us 
And that is we're going to talk about something called three-act story structure. Now, three-act story structure is what every movie, television, not every, virtually every, all the movies that you really hated tried to break three-act story structure. Okay? And you were like, why did I waste my time watching that? Okay? Sometimes you can do that in three-act story too, but, but if, if somebody's really trying to get outside of three-act story structure, the problem is it just doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't do anything. We listen to stories. We think it's all about entertainment, and in, indeed there is that aspect to it. But what we don't understand is, do remember, Jesus used parables. Why? They were stories with three-act story structure in them that we were to enter into the parable and get a revelation. And that revelation was to change us. Jesus started his journey, his final journey, by telling them parable after parable after parable after parable because he was trying to get them shocked into understanding things differently than they currently did. You need to have a moment. You need to come to a place where all of a sudden you think things are a certain way, they're going a certain way, and all of a sudden, bam, they're not that way at all. But then some other way comes about, and you're going, oh my gosh, that is better. That is the way it really is. See what I mean? He's trying to change us with this stuff. So three-act story structure, it's in movies, it's in television, it's in books, it's even in the games that have stories. If you're just talking first-person shooter, there's still a little bit of it. But any story that has a, any game that has a story in it, this story is built on three-act structure. It's the way jokes work, it's the way parables work. It works, it's everywhere. Now I'm gonna say something right here, which those of you who travel in these circles are gonna wanna talk to me about, and by all means, give me a call. But I'm gonna tell you that three-act story structure is how God works with us. That's why it resonates with us. God teaches us using this very structure. We now use it to tell stories, as did he, to tell stories. But there are many, 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 many stories in the Bible that are three-act story structure in order to bring about revelation in the character and in us as we read it. And God does that in our lives. Somebody could say, no, it's just the brain doing pattern recognition. If that is what you think, like I say, call me. That's for an, I've talked about that in other sermons, and I'll talk to you about that again. But I'm telling you, this is how God grows us. Three-act story. It's why we call ourselves narrative beings. Okay? This is what works. All right, so having said that, I want to show you something. I want to show you three-act story structure. Act one, act two, act three. There it is. It's done. Three-act story structure. Okay, wait. All right, first act is this. Who and what are the circumstances? Who are the characters in our story, and in what situation do they find themselves? In particular, what you're going after in Act 1 is this. Who's the person that I'm supposed to identify with? There's going to be one person in every story that you're going to most identify with that you're supposed to become them. We have mirror neurons, and we can feel what other people feel, and we're supposed to use those mirror neurons to enter into the story to feel what that character is feeling as the story unfolds so that when they get to a certain place of hopelessness, but then revelation comes, we get the revelation, the catharsis too. Okay? So you got to find the protagonist. I just want to say something. In the old days in movies of a 120-page script, which is a 45 seconds a page, which means an hour and a half long movie, the first 20 pages were usually act one. In today's world, we will not put up with that because we're saturated with stories now, and what we want is we want our character development during our plot development too. So now we have about five page of opening, but then we're right in the middle of whatever action, whatever thing is happening, right? And so we do it very short, but we still do the development to find the protagonist, to fall in love, to identify with, to come in and experience it. Having said that, act two then is, now this is true, notice it's a downward slope. This is true whether it's a comedy, a drama, a horror movie, a thriller, an action flick, whatever it is. Every single, even jokes. You have to create a tension. They're at stasis, they're green pastures and still waters, and now comes a journey. A little long paths of righteousness for his name's sake into the valley of the shadow of death. Okay? There has to come a tension. So there's a complication, which makes everybody tense, including you as you're watching it. Okay? Even if it's a romantic comedy, it's still, there's a tension that's in there. So here comes the tension, and then about, I don't know, two-thirds of the way through, it depends. There's all kinds of variations on the theme, which is why they don't get old, although some movies you can, you know, Hallmark movies you can... You know from the moment that it opens how the whole thing is going to go, right? Because they really follow this formula. 
Now, my parents love Hallmark, and if you're listening to it, I can't wait to get back to Jackson and watch another 10 Hallmarks with you. <laughs> I love you. All right. Complication. Okay, they love them. And they call it the Hallmark moment when they get to Act 3. Okay. But what happens is there's always going to be a solution. There's going to be something that happens in the story that's going to seemingly make it okay. And for a little while, you're going to be like, oh, maybe this is the new ground, and I can settle, and everything's okay. And then all of a sudden, boom, the bottom drops out. We go into full-fledged crisis. There we are, right? Now, romantic comedy, how does this work? Boy and girl meet cute. Boy or girl, whichever one, is our protagonist. There's a complication, you know. Uh, she owns a little bookstore, and he's the big megalomaniac book company who's going to overtake, right? Okay? So they can't possibly get together because they're at different interests, but then they cut to liking each other, and maybe there's something that's going to go on, right? And it's going to be okay, and then all of a sudden she finds out what's really going on. Even though at that point in time he's wanting to back out of it, but it still comes out, and now it's crisis. They cannot possibly get together. It's Bruce Willis who's in the tower... And he's just at a Christmas party, and terrorists take over the building. And so that's tension, but he starts to win. He's beating the bad guys. And we start to thinking, well, if this keeps up, he's going to beat all the bad guys. He's going to win a false bottom. And then what happens? He gets captured. It always ends with some guy hanging off of a chain these days, right? You know, being electrocuted and so on, right? So now he's captured. There's no way he's going to be able to do anything. They even go to... Sorry, I hate horror. I don't know. Does anybody in here watch horror movies? Yeah, I know. I, I do not understand. You know how big they are in the world? But even in a horror movie, the teenagers are just going to a little trip, right? And they're going to meet at the house. And then it gets dark and something weird happens and there's tension. But then they lock themselves in a room so they're safe. But then there's some portal or some traitor or, you know, some hole or some secret passage or whatever it is. And boom, now they're in crisis. And also some of the kids have already died. I really shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. It's always the kids that are doing, that are having sex. They're the ones that die first. Okay. All right, so it's crisis, <laughs> it's crisis, and now they're, now they're in a locked dungeon, but everybody, there's no possibility of hope. Here's the key to the end of Act 2. This is the key. You gotta lose hope. There is no hope anymore. There's no chance. It's over. Bad guy won, bad thing won, bad, you know, girls, guy and girl don't get together. It's over. And then we even get this little moment here that goes on just a little bit over to the right where we're kind of living in that and we're going, this sucks, right? As a moviegoer, as a person who's experiencing this story, I hate this. Look, she's going this way and he's going that way or this is happening or all these terrible things. This is really bad, right? Now, a little bit of sidebar right here. Just dropping you out. I want you to see something. It'll be important in a sec, okay? In the old Greek tragedies, which was everything that they did, in the old Greek plays, think about what their mindset was of reality. It was that there are all these gods, and they are not necessarily good people. There might be one or two good gods, and the rest of them are drunks or, you know, whatever, right? And that they get in these arguments, and they mess with people in order to prove a point. There's these things that happen, and as far as we're concerned, it's arbitrary, capricious, it has no meaning, it's just stupid, we hate this, but we have to make appeasement to them. Now what they would do is, at that critical moment at Act 3, when everything was wherever it was, then there would be what we call deus ex machina, and what that means is God and the machine, and literally the reason why they call it that is because look at the machine. And what they would do is, is the people would be acting it out down here on the stage, and then it was time for God to show up. God shows up. That's another way of saying it. And what happens is they would literally lower God into the middle of the action, and then God would just make everything whatever he wanted to make it, and it was over. There was no continuity in story. There was no flow. There was no purpose. It would be God and the machine, boom. That's it. 
Now, the reason why I bring that up is because we don't do that anymore. And the reason why we don't do that is because it's not true. Things aren't arbitrary and capricious. It's not just not true because there's not a bunch of gods up there that are doing something. It's that there is meaning in life. In everything that happens, there's meaning. The Holy Spirit comes over the formless and void, the tohu wabohu, the emptiness and the void, and the Holy Spirit shapes the empty and the void into things that have purpose and meaning. Everything that happens in your life has purpose and meaning. Everything that happens in your life is part of God's plan for you. Prepared since before the foundations of the world. Everything. We don't see it. We don't know it. We don't even really think it, even as Christians. We don't understand the degree to which God is working a journey, a three-act revelation. He's trying to bring us to an understanding through everything that happens in our life. Now, again, you can argue that. If you want to, feel free. But what I'm telling you is, this is good theology. God is utterly in control, and the Holy Spirit is continuing to bring purpose and meaning, revelation, understanding, growth, depth to every person through everything that happens in our lives. This is true. Having said that then, in the new reality, what we do is, in the, in the new storytelling, in the new three act, and this is consistent. See, in the Greek way of doing it, it was capricious and arbitrary. Now we understand it has meaning and purpose. And so what happens is this. Revelation catharsis. Something happens that is God in the machine, God showing up, the solution showing up. See? Like Bruce Willis has the gun behind him and he's able to pull it out or, or they get away or, you know, the bad guys leave the room for some unknowable reason before they die, right? Or whatever happens, something happens in a horror flick. You know, somebody who was bad but the person treated them nicely at the beginning of the movie, all of a sudden they come back and they help them escape. See what I mean? And get over on. There's something that happens that all of a sudden brings about a release of the tension, a revelation, something like this. Now, I want you to understand something about that. This is key for what we're doing today. This is the point. That revelation is always there. It doesn't just show up with no predecessor. God says, I never do anything but what I don't tell the prophets. God told us a year and a half ago what he was going to do, and then he did it. God always, you have, the disciples do not know that Jesus is going to die despite the fact he told them. It's there. We don't see it, but it's always there. And in a good movie, the point is when we get to the catharsis, to the revelation, to the aha moment, why didn't I see that? It was there. Bruce Willis was dead the whole movie. Right? It was there. I just didn't see it. What was wrong with me that I saw this, but not this? Are you getting it? Okay, now watch what we're going to do. We're going to take this, and I'm going to start. There is a little denouement, which is to take it back to a new stasis, to take it back to new green pastures. You get through Psalm 23, and you're back to green pastures again, right? Now watch. I'm going to take the Abraham story, and I'm going to show you how this works. Abram is the person, his circumstance, he's from Ur and he's been called to go to another land. The complication is that he's been called to go to another land, he's been given another land, and that he has no children. And so he's becoming very prosperous, but he's getting to the point where he's saying, how can you give me this land? I'm old, I'm about to die. He was 100 years old when he had the kid. I'm about to die, I have no, you know, he's 80s when he's saying this. I'm, how can I have... How can I ha inherit this land? I'm going to die. There isn't anybody but a servant to take it. You see it? So that's the complication. And so we get a false bottom, don't we? What is it? Ishmael, right? The handmaid. Go with the handmaid. There's your, you know, there's your solution, right? But that's not the solution. So there it is. Now, we get a double false bottom. Like I say, there's ways of varying the theme, just like there are all songs are really the same notes and the same everything. They're just put together in different ways. 
And so we get a second thing here. They get a miraculous son. Well, there's the bottom. Now Isaac is in the world. There's the person that's going to have all these stars from the heaven and blah, blah, blah. Here we go, right? Until what happens? The crisis. Sacrifice him. What do you mean sacrifice him? You just said, you know, this is not okay. Now, Robert did something beautiful last week that I need you to do right here in order to really get this. You can't look at the story because you already know the end. You got to go through the story right now as if you're him and you don't know what's coming. So what you've got is a crisis. If Abraham goes and sacrifices the kid, what is he? He's a, he's a murderer of his own family, for heaven's sakes. That's how we process this information, don't we? Isn't that how you see it? I mean, how else, if he'd done this with you and you hadn't heard this story and you didn't know all the stuff that we know, how else would you process that? This is crazy. You see it? There isn't any way that that's going to work out good. There's going to be no hope. This is bad. No hope. But then, takes him up the hill, ties him to the wood, lifts the knife, and is literally just about to plunge the knife into his own son when the angel cries out, Abram, Abram. And he says, stop. <laughs> and then he says, look up, and there's a ram caught in the thickets. Caught in the thicket. <sighs> right? If you're in the story, oh my God, thank you, God. You spared me. You, you gave me a way out. In fact, this is what it says. Now remember, I told you, everything has meaning. What's the meaning that Abraham got out of this and that all of us are supposed to get out of this? Right here. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Don't hurt him in any way. Listen, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Do you see this? What was it about? He suddenly understands what it was about. Is your son, even the promised son, is he going to be, is he bigger than God? You can't let that happen. You can't let the things that God gives you become bigger than him. Because then they take control of you and they own you instead of you owning them, right? So this is not okay. And all of a sudden we understand something. Everything is God's. Every good gift comes down from above. See it? Abraham, watch though. Remember I told you it's always in the story? You remember what Abraham said when he was walking up the hill? Father, where's the lamb? God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then the two of them walked on. Now, wait a minute. As I'm trying to just experience the story, I don't remember that. The thing that was extraordinary that Hebrews even points out about him to the, to the nth degree, it is, there is a way, there's two solutions, as Robert said. One of them is that the, that the lamb, that there would be a lamb and there would be some other sacrifice provided for. The other one is that he would actually die and God would have to raise the kid from the dead. Now, here's what Abraham was not doing. This is crazy. <laughs> this is stupid. You probably, arguing with God. Here's what he was doing. You're the one that gave him to me. If you're telling me to do this, I don't understand. But I have to. I have to do what you say. It's the only way it's going to come to what it needs to come to. I have to obey. See, he's not getting lost in the cacophony of all of the noise. He's remembering that this is a child of promise and that somehow God is going to fulfill that promise. I believe that you're going to fulfill the promise. That's who you are. I trust you. And so I will obey you. Right? Now this is a great story, the most important, the second most important story in all of human history, right there. It's the kind of faith that we need to have. But I do want to show you something about it. This is where we're really extending 
what Robert talked about last week. If you understand God that way, then he becomes the God of 11.59 and 59 seconds. He becomes the God that shows up at the last second, right? That's the lesson that we learn, right? Is that true in your lives? Has God always showed up at 11.59 and 59 seconds? Has he always showed up? Or has at some point in time something that you really believed he was going to do and really were standing on and really believing for and everything else gone right past 1 o'clock or you know, 12 o'clock midnight and then just kept on going? Has there ever been a time in your life? Thank God that there's a lot of things that God does in our lives to show us that he really is the God of 11.59.59. But you have to understand something. The reason why he's trying to get you to trust him about the fact that he's the God of 11.59.59 is because in some point in time, he's going to take you past that time. And suddenly, it's not going to be 11.59.59 anymore. It's going to be, I don't know what's going on. It's the disciples looking at God looking at Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, sitting on a cross, and then actually dying. What am I supposed to do now? Right? You know what's fascinating about that Abraham story? God spared Isaac, but he didn't spare his own son. It got to 11, 59, 59, and then it went, just kept going. Went right on past it. And he died. And they freaked out and scattered, just like he said, just like they said. Now, it's not that Jesus couldn't got out of this. All by himself, before he was dead, this is the night before. This is Sunday morning. This is now Saturday night. So just last night, here's what Jesus said. They, they, they come to arrest him. Somebody cuts off the ear. Put your sword back in its place because all who take up a sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot call on my Father and he will provide at once more than 12 legions of angels? Do you not know that I could deliver myself from this like that? But I'm not going to. Instead, he is on the cross and he says to the Lord, my God, my God why have you abandoned me? Has anybody else ever said that? Has anybody else ever felt that? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why didn't you do this? Why did you let them die? Why did you let them leave? Why did you let this happen? How can you do that and call yourself a loving God? Don't you know what you did to me? Right? I got to tell you, you know, if you're really going to ever worship God, you got to get rid of 1159.59. Because what he's showing you in Jesus that is much more than what he showed you in Abram and Abraham is he's showing you that he's not the God of 1159.59. He's the God of whenever he's got it. He's certainly in control. You may lose heart because you don't think he was there the way you wanted him to be there. But the fact of the matter is he is there. And he's just doing his timing. Watch this. The 12 disciples say, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where all the predictions of the prophets, this is Jesus telling them just the 10 days before. Listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. He will be handed over to the Romans. He will be mocked. He will be treated shamefully and spit upon. They will flog him with a whip and kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. But they didn't understand any of this. The point I'm trying to make, there's the noise and then there's God. And this is not the only time he told it to him. You do realize that this is a theme that's been going on for a long time. What does he say in here? The predictions of the prophets. What does that mean? It means that he's been telling them for a long time what was going to happen to the Messiah. Why nobody saw it is like unbelievable for us who now see it because we have the advantage of having seen what it really was. What I want to tell you is nobody at that point in time got it. So you have to understand that that's how we are. We hear the noise, and we get distracted by it, and we lose the voice of the Lord. Here's a time when in Isaiah 53, which I think is probably the most extraordinary chapter in all the Old Testament because of how it talks about Jesus. And just listen to this. 
He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Right? This is the crucifixion. But now watch. Now he's going to twist it. You were thinking one thing, but here's what I'm thinking, says the Lord. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly. He never said a word. He was led like a lamb to slaughter. And a sheep is silent before the shears. He did not open his mouth. This is an eyewitness description of what Jesus did. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants. Think about Abram. Abraham, think about it. God was sparing him for what? The descendants. And here is God saying, <laughs> but yet there are descendants. But nobody cared. He was cut off, as he said, in midstream. His life was cut short in midstream. He was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. He was buried like a criminal, but put in a rich man's grave. Oh my gosh. Just right here. But it was the Lord's, if you want to try and say that there isn't meaning in the world, you have to deal with prophecy. And you have to deal with a prophecy this specific. It was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. Us. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. That's us. He will bear our sins. I will, God says, give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Jewish people in that day and age knew this scripture, most of them word for word. They didn't have books the way that we have books, and they weren't literate the way that we're literate. So they weren't able to not memorize it because they had a book to go read. So what they would do, particularly the scholars, but they, even the people, they would hear these things read and they would memorize them. They would put them in their hearts. How can you read that and then see what happened with Jesus and not understand what's happening when he dies on a cross? so that instead of being there, you freak out and scatter and end up in fear. How could that happen? I don't think I know the answer. The thing that I know is I do it. And so I've got to start doing something else. I've got to start looking for the Lord's voice in the middle of the noise. All the time. All the time. I've got to start realizing there is noise and it's going to distract me. Even the women, when they get there, the women are terrified. And this is after the, Jesus is raised again. The men ask, why are you looking among the dead for someone who's alive? He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Remember what he told you? That son of man must be betrayed in the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would raise again on the third day. Then they remembered that he had said this. So again, the point is, if your God is the God of 1159.59, I'm sorry to tell you, but there's a 1, there's a, there's a, a 120101 happening to you, or 120001. That's going to happen in your life. God is not the God of that clock. God is the God of a calendar. And if he wants to take three days to show you the truth, or as Hebrews talks about, saints of old that died looking forward to a promise that wasn't revealed until a thousand years later. 
It doesn't make him less true. He is the God of his promise. What he showed us in Abraham was that he fulfills his promises. What he's trying to show his disciples at this moment in time Everything falls apart, but I got it. What he's trying to show us right now in our world that is falling apart, I got it. I got it. I need you to find me, because I've already told you, I've already got it. You have every reason to know it. Get rid of the noise, get rid of the fear, get rid of the distraction, get rid of all the other stuff that's trying to take your attention. Because the fact, or, the fact is, is God is the one who does what he knows is best when it's best. I want you to do something right now. We're going to just take a minute. If you need to come to the altar, do. We're not done, so please don't leave. There will only be a minute on this. But I think that there's a lot of people that need to remind themselves of who God is. That's what he did all the way through worship. Remember that you're his child. Remember that I got you. That was the worship and that was the words and this is the message. And I want you to hear that God is trying to get something across to us. He's trying to say as much as you think, you get it. I'm telling you, I got it infinitely more. And so there is no fear. There's every reason to trust. There's every reason to seek him and find what he wants you to do and then just do it, no matter what it is. So I want you to take a minute here in your chairs or if you need to come forward, do. But I really want you to take a moment before the Lord here and I want you to press into him and just say, I get it, I don't see, I don't, I don't remember to hear just your voice. I get distracted, I get pulled away. I need to hear you. So let me just be about you. Thank you, Lord. Pam? same stillness, that same quietness that he brought us into in worship. Return in trust. Go right up to that altar. Pour all your fears and all your concerns and all your worries and all your logic and all your figuring it out. What this and all of it, just lay it on his altar and let him burn up that which is not him and refine that which is.
what I hear and I look at and get distracted by. Bury it. Wipe it out. Let me get in the zone with you to where you're the only thing I hear. You're the only thing I see. Everything that I hope in, that is you. Let it begin to fill my gaze, fill my perspective. All that we believe in, that is you, God. Raise it up that we might look on it with thanksgiving and praise even before it's ever happened. of God that passes all understanding. Flood in. And consume you. Take over everything. Thank you, God. Yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil. For you, your rod and your staff comfort us. And you prepare a table for us in the midst of our enemies. You anoint our head with oil. You cause our cup to run over. Surely goodness and mercy are what my life is all about. Even when I think it's about something else. Thank you, Jesus. Reach down in front of you. 